and welcome to Movies We Dig, the podcast about film, antiquity, and everything in between. I'm Elijah Fleming. And I'm Colin McCormick. And I'm Christy Vogler. And today we have a huge doozy of a movie to talk about, Fellini's Satyricon, a 1969 Italian fantasy drama, and I would maybe add a lot of other words to that description, (laughs) Um, a film written and directed by Federico Fellini. And we have some awesome, super fun guests that I'm so excited are here, Dr. Greg Hayes and Dr. Sarah Bond. Thank you guys for coming to talk about this wild ride with us. As always, we start the first question. Do you dig this movie? Sarah, Greg, what are your thoughts? I do dig this movie, but I don't think that it is something that is really a a coherent narrative in any way. So it's not about plot. Uh, For me, it is all about capturing the moment and because it was extremely colorful. So yeah, I dig it. I I dig this movie enormously, but I'm I'm also aware that it is not universally dug. I teach at UVA uh, a course called Ancient Rome at the Movies. And we, we go mostly in chronological order. So when we hit Lini Satyricon, we've just come off of uh, the long run of uh, big blockbuster movies, um, Quo Vadis, Ben-Hur, Cleopatra, Fall of the Roman Empire, which all kind of portray ancient Rome as basically 20th century America, except people wear togas and ride around in chariots. And Satyricon is emphatically not that. And so when, when we hit that, students are like, what has happened to me and how did I get here and what is going on? Those are literally questions I asked myself after <laughs> watching this movie. We, we should also, an important contextual bit of information for listeners, which is this is, we're, we're doing this movie by the request of our guests because we asked Sarah, <laughs> what movie would you like to see? And she came out with Satyricon and then recommended Greg Hayes because I think you both saw, or no, Sarah first saw this movie in Greg's class or something like that. Yes, University of Virginia is, is very well known uh, for its Petronius classes uh, and for its love of Petronius and study of it. So um, I, I felt as though I needed to take that as one of my Latin classes and was very pleasantly surprised that I, we were watching such a, a very interesting movie. But I had, was coming out of the school system in Roanoke, Virginia and had never been introduced to a film that had any kind of nudity or anything racy in it whatsoever. Uh, I had only ever seen Gladiator in in a Latin class in my high school. And so getting to be in college and to get to watch something that was very counter to my experience ever in Latin classes and to have Greg be the professor that uh, was the first professor I ever had to cuss, the first professor ever to talk about sex and nudity and to allow us to, to watch films that was really opened up a lot of my questions and interest and curiosity in Roman daily life. That this is a quotidian existence to me after taking that class was much more interesting than learning about Nero himself. So um, yes, I attribute it all to Greg and his class on Petronius. So that's why I suggested this film. I, I should say that this was, um, I think we agreed it was in, in 2002, and you know, this sort of dates me. Sarah, of course, is eternally young, but, um, but I am now, now very aged. And, and I think probably at the time this involved um, wheeling a television into the classroom and watching it off of a VHS cassette. So, so some, some time has passed since, since our first, our, Sarah's first viewing. I think I had, I had seen it before, but. Yeah, but then a few years later, my friend Jake Batera and I, this was 2012 or 2013, we decided after I mentioned this film again to go out to Cenacita to take the metro out of Rome uh, in to see the studios because I wanted to see the actual studio space. And instead of getting to see any of the remaining sets from Fellini's Satyricon, which they don't have, there we walked into HBO Rome and took a tour <laughs> through Gangs of New York. And then we went from Gangs of New York to uh, the set of HBO Rome and then accidentally saw Wes Anderson walking around the fake Pantheon. So what I'm telling you is this is a fortuitous movie. Think happen after you watch it that you do not expect it leads you in new directions and uh so so that's why i'm glad that we're talking about it oh my gosh 
Okay, how about Christy? What are what did you think of this movie? <laughs> I I liked what Sarah said about like you really have to appreciate particular moments because that was when I was trying to understand a narrative, I was feeling lost all the time. But then like the actual opening scene, I just love that he's standing in front of this wall with graffiti and the the lighting and everything was just like I could imagine that being a real place and kind of experience. And then my other favorite scene was the man and woman who were going to, they're like sending all their children away and they're going to commit suicide. Like I thought the setting was beautiful and just kind of the emotion between like freeing the slaves, sending the children off and just kind of having this moment between them. And it's like, that was so beautiful to watch. I didn't know how it fit entirely into the entire thing but like I loved that moment and I I couldn't always say why but like there was little things like that I really enjoyed I watched it on YouTube so it's we've come a long way from I remember subs coming to class like in elementary middle school and like here comes the giant tv on a cart and let's see what we're gonna watch today so um I I feel like I haven't been able to like fully form my thoughts. I watched this last week and I like did some reviews again on YouTube of, of like my favorite parts earlier today. And I just, I think I like thinking about it as like a weird dream, much like other Fellini type movies, which I think Greg had even brought up in sort of our early emails of like Satyricon as a Fellini film, not even a sword and sandal film, but it's it's the whole thing is a dream it's like you you don't know where you how you get from place to place but that doesn't really matter and i i agree that like the not worrying about it made it better <laughs> sort of like leaning into the to the dream made it a whole lot better and i have to say the boats were were my favorite part and i can't really put like my finger on why <laughs> i'm still i'm still working through it but i i like i don't know if i ever want to do a rewatch it was so weird <laughs> I think part of this leads us to kind of Fellini's style. And I know that Greg can talk a little bit about this as well, is that he was so well known for improvisation. And this was maddening to people on the set because he was very hands-on. But improvisation even happened prior to them filming this movie, is that they kept asking him who he was going to cast. And he famously said, I'm going to cast the Beatles. And Mickey Mouse. Right. He would just riff, essentially. And this is part of the 1960s, I think, the, this riffing on each other and working off of what you have in context and building upon narratives and the moment. And I think we can see part of this cultural riffing that he's doing within the movie as well. And when he was interviewed, I went back and, and read a few interviews, and there's a very famous book that was written after the the film came out that kind of gives you a biography of the making of the movie. But Fellini himself talked about the fact that he wanted this to be a fresco, essentially, Um, and that these are partite frescoes that you are digesting and receiving, but they don't necessarily all come together as a comic strip or anything. They're just independent frescoes that work in conjunction with each other, but also work separately. And I did think that that was a pretty good metaphor for the film. And a lot of those frescoes and graffiti that you're talking about, and many of the props as well, just like we see with movies like Spartacus, are directly plucked from the Capitoline Museums and from Pompeii. That a lot of the aesthetics that we're digesting are, are a mix of Petronius along with Fellini's visiting the site of Pompeii and also his prop masters definitely going to the Capitoline Museum because I saw Constantine going by in the first 15 minutes and I was like, that's definitely the head of Constantine. <laughs> That's like the end of the movie. It basically all but but spells its thesis out where like the final shot is all of those, the walls, the, the sort of fractured walls, the fragmentary walls with the different frescoes. I was sort of thinking that because I went and checked out a couple of books in between watching this film and us recording today. And, and I've come to the conclusion that this film is a lot more fun to sort of read about than it necessarily is to watch but like in a sense it's almost the truest adaptation of Petronius and even or you know this is the sort of hyperbolic statement of any thing about Rome because both Petronius's work itself is deeply fragmentary and is so with you know with the exception of maybe the dinner of Trimalchio which is kind of a self-contained narrative it's all it's very stuttery and um 
start and stop but but rome itself as we experience it today is fragmentary both like so much of the literature only exists in fragments the physical buildings the art we only have a piece of and we have to do so much filling in so in a sense and that was fellini's whole kind of thesis he has a quote that i read where he says something to the effect of that like you know i found as i was digging in and starting to think about this movie I realized that we actually really don't know a lot about Rome and it's actually this sort of this dark space, this nebulous space. So I'm going to treat it like it's a sci-fi, like we're going into sort of deep space, except instead of planet X or whatever, we're going to, to ancient Rome. Yeah, we have to think about the fact that the Cana Trimalchionis was only discovered in 1650 and then it stayed hidden for another 14 years. And so it's interesting to think about people reading the Cana after this time period when it was found. But that means people reading Petronius prior to that in the Carolingian Empire, for instance, and Tony Grafton has a, a great article about this, about people reading it prior to the discovery of the Cana, that they don't even have Trimalchio to hold it together prior to that. Um, but I don't know, Greg, what do you think about the fragmentary nature of it? Well, I, yeah, I mean, I think, I think the movie very much uh, recapitulates the the fragmentariness of the of the original, and I think that's that's one of the things that must have appealed to Fellini about it. I mean, if you if you sort of put this in the in the context of other other Fellini movies, you know, Fellini Fellini starts out kind of looking to the untutored eye like an Italian neorealist director who's who's doing sort of gritty street scenes um, with movies like like La Strada, and as his career uh, goes on, it becomes clear that he's not really that kind of director at all. That he's he's really at the other end of the spectrum. He's interested in fantasy and the the permeable boundary between the real and the imaginary, between between art and and life. And you know, of his kind of later color movies, the one that this most reminds me of, I think, is Fellini's Rome uh, or Fellini's Roma, um, which is episodic in the same way. It's it's just this series of of kind of discrete episodes without a lot of connection between them, one of which is a beautiful little episode where, where they're um, excavating the Italian uh, metro. And uh, so this, this group of visitors goes down into the excavations and breaks into this room with, uh, that is decorated with Roman fresco paintings. And so there's this sort of moment of, of glorious uh, vision of, of ancient Rome. And then as the, as the oxygen in the air uh, circulates, the, the paintings slowly disappear uh, and are, are gone forever. And, and, you know, that's a, um, a scene that, that feels as if it came right out of Satyricon in, in many respects. Yeah, I, I'm glad that you brought the picture gallery up because I, I don't think that people realize enough that that's kind of foreshadowing of what is to come in, in my mind, but but also that they actually existed. It's something that my students are always amazed by, that museums and picture galleries are something that existed in both private and public spaces, like temples in the ancient world. I think oftentimes they think of the world of museums as something that is a modern invention. And so when they visit the picture gallery prior to going to the Cana, it's always something revelatory for, for many students, even if it's old hat to classicists. Yeah, because we recognize a lot of the of the images that are that are there and we can, can sort of place them historically and and it's such an odd and miscellaneous collection of of images. I mean, there are there are Minoan frescoes, there are Etruscan tomb paintings, there are attic base paintings. There's cuneiform, um, there's Septimius Severus um, on that tondo, and it's all sort of circulating in the same mixture. And also, like I was reading one of the things that when this movie came out in 1969 or 1970, depending on in Italy or, or internationally, critics were both mixed on it, but classicists too were kind of mixed. And, but it, funnily, and I think this to me is very telling of just the way a lot of classicists' brains work, is that they were kind of splitting hairs or, or getting divided over the fact that a lot of the references in Fellini's Satyricon is both just not Petronius but also kind of anachronistic, like Sarah mentioned, the head of Constantine coming through. And I think the, the woman in the, the villa of the suicide scene, she's reading a bit of Hadrian's epigrams or something like that. And it's all very, yeah, and it's impressionistic. And we talk on this podcast all the time of the way very often movies about the classical world kind of, it gets put through the sort of blender of here's just all the images we associate with antiquity, whether it's, you know, Koroi 
or black figure wear vases or whatever, the Athena oval or something like that. And let's just put it all in together because it's all recognizable. And this city in a movie like like Troy, where they go through Troy and you can see you can kind of pick and point and be like, that's, you know, bronze age, that's classical, archaic. Or, yeah, exactly. And then but in, in that is, you know, we can kind of laugh to ourselves about how anachronistic or, or sort of silly it is. But in this movie, it's all it feels very deliberate. And it also like it doesn't sort of matter because my sort of galaxy brain conclusion about this movie is is trying to evaluate this movie on the basis of historicity is like trying to figure out like how good a painting tastes you know that's like that's not the 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 metric we should be thinking about it in authenticity is not the point and i think that's also the point in petronius when tramalchio talks about the story of Troy, and he mixes up Cassandra and Helen, he gets things so woefully wrong about the past. And uh, to see Constantine's head flowing around and uh, to see things that we would consider to be anachronistic, exactly. It's not the point, but maybe the inaccuracy is itself a reference to Petronius and to Trimalchio, but also many characters who get things wrong. My first ever conference paper at, was at CamWest, and it was about this exactly almost. It was about the way Tremalchio speaks, both in that he's sort of hypercorrective in all the ways, like he tries to sound very erudite. And this is so for general sort of listeners. So there's this huge dinner with a former slave, a, a freedman named Tremalchio, and he's throwing this lavish dinner party, and he's trying to impress his guests with his eloquence and his taste and his sophistication, and he sort of basically tries to sound very fancy and highfalutin, both in kind of the stories he tells and the, the you know, his, his behavior, but also his language itself in the Latin is hypercorrective, where he makes these sort of grammar mistakes that you would associate, like, it would be like the equivalent of English of saying, like, whomever all the time because you think it's like in that scene in the office where they're like whomever is the formal <laughs> distinction to differentiate from whoever or something like that so that's a that's a tangent but i could talk about that for for days but i won't well i think the tramalchio in this movie was one of the parts where i like laughed out loud when the other poet is like that's lucretius or something he's like hey, you didn't write that he's like spouting off yeah different um <laughs> like some plagiarized verse. And I think I laughed out loud. I was like, that's hilarious. That's amazing. And it that's felt- so, He's so outraged about it. Edi Lucrezio. Yeah. Lucrezio. Yeah. <laughs> he's so, it was so genuine and just such like a, a human moment. Felt wonderful. That's the classicist right there, Eumolpus. You know, the idea of the guy who kind of gets fixated on the minutia and the pedantry and complains about decline and how everything is, we're all dumber than, than we used to be or whatever. And it's actually this, but it's all kind of like, there's like a, there's like a glaring and hilarious lack of self-awareness in that. And even that character, Eumolpus, in Petronius is like that. He's the sort of pedantic um, and also, I think the character Agamemnon is kind of like that, too. There's there's a bunch of people that sort of complain about the, like, how people are all dumb and nobody knows anything anymore and education has gone down, you know, the shitter. The liberal <laughs> professors. Don't forget about the liberal professors. Mm -hmm. The beginning of the satiricon is always amazing to me. He's talking essentially about professors who are corrupting the minds of the youth and they just don't know what they're talking about anymore and they've misled them and... Feels like a, a very 2021 moment when you read the very beginning of the Satyricon again. Yeah, that was the, the only thing I had time to read was the very beginning. I'm like, wait, I'm not on my phone. What's happening? <laughs> but this conversation is is very uh, present in the moment, especially with the critical race theory and the election that just happened in Virginia about that being the central argument. You're like, okay. Some but I do think that it's important what you guys brought up earlier and also what, what Greg did as well is that this is one of, and he'll have to clarify because his knowledge of film history is, is much better, but it's not that this is the first time that we ever see Romans of color, but what we're seeing is a patchwork in so many senses of the words that we have a Mediterranean world that has lots of skin tones um, but also we have references to China and to Africa and to so many different spaces and places that a lot of times many American-made movies and BBC movies, et cetera, that we will see even in the future uh, don't go into. So one thing that is kind of wonderful besides the incredible amount of makeup that these women are wearing 
are just the different types of people that are being represented in a way that that I don't normally see unless the stunning scene in Cleopatra where you have a white Cleopatra being lifted up by I think six African men. Mm, a little bit different than what we have here, which really is just a mix of people being represented. Yeah, I will say that part blew my mind, actually. Um, and I just remember the controversy of Troy Fall of the City of casting Zeus and Achilles. And, and we're like, this shouldn't surprise anyone. This is very almost a cosmopolitan society. So you will have a broad mix of people um, being represented. So it's cool to see here. Yeah, and I think part of this is the that Fellini is Italian in in you know most of your your standard Togo movies. You know these are American filmmakers casting American actors and ultimately making a movie about America, which means that they're they're absorbing and reflecting you know the racial dynamics of of America. And Fellini doesn't have to do that and doesn't, and uh, and it makes a huge difference to the to the way we we experience the film and and the the casting and the the whole the whole shebang. And Fellini himself, he, he sort of said, and like, I made this note as I was watching it, that it seems like there's so many, not even just in the sort of skin tone, but just like, there's such a, a range of like, very striking faces. And that seemed to be something that Fellini was super interested in, that like people will just come on, they'll be like, there's something really, sometimes it's like, it, it goes even beyond like, classically attractive or unattractive or something like that. But these people just have really remarkable faces are really they really stick with you like there's some actors that are just kind of like that there's something about their face that's just kind of compelling for some reason and in Fellini's you know he's cast some of the cast are actors professionally and some of them are just people that Fellini was like yes be in this be in my movie be in this scene because the eyebrows in this movie were spectacular everybody had amazing just like stark eyebrows I was so into it but I think that's really the core of Petronius is being represented in terms of his interests and what we might call today non-normative bodies right that, that we've got little people and we have got all different types of, of persons exactly that that you're talking about and that's something that he's very fascinated by in terms of scars right and, and in terms of even though this isn't depicted of, you know, putting on different types of makeup, um, modifying your body. Uh, so I, I think you're right that he wants to cast very interesting looking people. But I think that that, again, is something that is very much authentic to what Petronius is trying to do as well is to talk about the bodies that don't fit perfectly into what the mold of beauty that that some people hold is in the past, but but also in, in the present. And oftentimes that is for the amusement of the audience. And so that is something that we understand very differently today than, than they did uh, then. But I still think it is important that we have lots of different body types that are being shown to us and that we're appreciating rather than, again, the like standard handsome white person that you normally get. I had a sort of segue question I wanted to pick everyone's brain about, but one of the things that, speaking of sort of just faces, one of the things that really jumped out to me was there's many scenes, and I think it's particularly in the scene where they're kind of walking in the beginning, where they're walking through Rome and they're going through the the, the brothel scene, and also in the in the dinner where there's just the camera will be moving, and then you'll just see someone like staring straight into the camera and like staring right at you. And I wanted to know what what people thought of it because I'm trying to like think of like how I want to interpret that, not that it needs to be interpreted. It's it's one of the sort of the the cinematic hallmarks or leitmotifs or whatever the uh, whatever the word is of of the movie that it it has these these very clear breaking of the fourth wall moments um, where where characters are just just looking at us um, out of the film you know, almost curiously sometimes so they're just as fascinated by us as we are by by them. I wonder almost if this is one of those Fellini-esque things as I was meant to say earlier, but one of my big laments is that I hadn't seen more Fellini films in anticipation to this movie, because I think that would really, you know, this is a movie that like, it, it's so hard to just take out of context of any context, whether that's Italian cinema or everything going on in the late 60s or Rome and how we perceive then and now. And like I was watching an interview with with Martin Scorsese, who's one of Fellini's sort of, you might say, protégés. And he was talking that he really wanted to show his daughter eight and a half. But, be, but he was like, well, she can't just watch this as her first Fellini. Like, we got to go back and we got to watch La Strada. We got to watch La Dolce Vita. Because without that kind of context, 
I mean, this is almost like you might say this is kind of like late Latin literature or Hellenistic literature. Like it kind of only makes sense in the greater tapestry or the kaleidoscope of its surroundings. I would agree. And I mm -hmm. think that certainly this movie never would have gotten made if he hadn't have previously already made La Dolce Vida and the success of Eight and a Half and things like mm -hmm. this. This movie would never have been able to be greenlit on just the pitch alone. Yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to imagine like, like that pitch. The inertia of Bellini <laughs> and his mm -hmm. success prior is what brings this movie to be nominated for an award for best director. I do not think that he would have gotten, honestly, a best director nomination in 1970 for the, or 1971 for the Academy Awards if he, he didn't Fellini. have the prior success, if was, he hadn't been just previously called the greatest living director. Was Revenant really Leonardo DiCaprio's best performance, or is it just, is it the cumulative <laughs> inertia of everything that we associate? <laughs> to go back to the people staring at us, Colin. Sorry, yes. I, I, got, I got distracted, much like this movie. <laughs> I know we can just we can go in circles and it it would be great. <laughs> I it felt like especially in the Tramalchio scene that like we were also at the dinner party like the audience is also the audience and so it's it was very much like it took me a while to kind of notice it. It was like oh somebody's staring at me and it's like somebody across the dinner table is like kind of watching you or something and it felt kind of real in a very off-putting way. <laughs> But um, I've, I've never experienced a movie in that particular way. So I think I kind of liked that. It was fun. It was cool to be a participant somehow. Yeah. yeah, to kind of build off of that, especially like the brothel scene where like those are such voyeuristic moments, but our attention isn't brought to that unless someone stares back at us. I'm like, oh, I, maybe I shouldn't be watching that. Like yeah. One of the really famous sequences in the movie is that that tracking shot that takes us through the through the brothel and we're looking into into each room and there are characters doing things um looking back at us uh and you know all the time we're moving we never quite have time to register what's what's going on and the whole scene i think is really about sort of cinema as voyeurism that it's it's showing us these things and we're we're watching them and yet feeling weird and awkward and uncomfortable about it Right. And I wanted to point out just that they do specifically, I think, call it the Lupinati. I mean, they call it the, the wolf den. And so it is a specific reference to the brothel of Pompeii, the only standing brothel that we have from Mediterranean antiquity, at least, is the Lupinari at, at Pompeii. And, and so it has just recently been reopened. And uh, so I would encourage people who are listening to pick up Sarah Levin Richardson's book specifically on the brothel of Pompeii, and also to go visit because I think that, again, a lot of the set design and things that are happening in, in terms of the rooms where you have stone beds, etc., that are built into the wall. All of this is very much archaeologically attested. And I'm not saying it's 100% accurate, but it's it's very inspired by actual material culture. Like the thought of being engaged with the film itself, do you think Fellini was also trying to comment on how we look at the past and we sometimes feel like we're not actually engaged with it, but we are really taking a lot from it at the same time? Everyone's nodding their heads. For well, that's just at like home. a really big question, right? I feel like I have to like think about it. Well, I think the, I think the museum episode is is kind of a, a pointer in that direction. That uh, it's kind of you know whenever you have a a scene of ekphrasis where a, a, an artwork or something is described um, or pictured within a within another artwork, um, it often has a a kind of mise en abeam quality to it. That it's it's sort of a recapitulating the the entirety of the movie in a smaller in a smaller space and i think the the museum scene does that that the movie as a whole is sort of taking all of these disparate borrowed elements from from antiquity and from fellini's imagination and putting them on display for us and it, it's th this movie is like simultaneously in you know vaguely imperial rome but also the late 60s just in the sense that like like the the uh, encopius and, and ascultus have been imagined as kind of that like almost that trope of the late 60s college dropout where they're like they're students but they never really go to class or anything like <laughs> yeah. they're almost radicals but they're not really radicals they're kind of self-invested or you know the, the museum looks like you know you would go to a, an early 70s 
experimental art gallery or something or um and even i was thinking sarah was talking about the the architecture that is it evocative of of actual archaeological evidence but it's also to me it was also evocative of like fascist architecture from italy in the 40s and where it's that it sort of takes a classical theme but it sort of flattens and smooths and makes it bigger where if you if you go to rome and you see fascist architecture there it kind of looks like the the idea of ancient designs but in like giant monumental concrete and very sheer and i was thinking about particularly in the earliest scenes where they're in i guess the insula you might call it like the apartment complex but it looks like it looks like the lazarus pit from dark knight rises <laughs> where it's it's just this like giant i couldn't tell if it was above or below ground and it was like a cave with all these like sheer concrete walls and 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 stark you know very kind of lots of right angle angles jesus lots of right angles this movie is both in Rome and in late 60s uh, high culture, I guess. Yeah, that that, that structure is, is sort of like we're inside a hollow ziggurat. Because mm-hmm. it's this, yeah. this um, square thing that gets progressively smaller as you as you go towards the, the ceiling. Um, and it's one of a number of settings in the movie where we're in an interior space that is kind of claustrophobic but there is a an oculus of some sort there's a um, a circular hole in the in the roof or um, there's an impluvium or there's some sort of of access to an outside that we can see but we can't we can't quite reach and the the claustrophobic feeling of the movie i think is is because it was virtually all shot indoors yeah i mean virtually all shot on a sound stage at at chinechita and I thought it was an extra weird choice when we were in that insula and then Bane comes out and he's like, to ascend, you must climb from the pit. Uh, but to but to, to Greg's point about the unsettling, because another thing about this movie that I think it is like we talked about kind of we don't necessarily enjoy watching this film, but it's like this film does have a deeply unsettling vibe to it where i mean just everything anytime the character of of, of a skiltus is on screen i get deeply uncomfortable <laughs> well I, I think that part of this is that when fellini was formulating the film he was trying to make people uncomfortable by calling it a homosexual film calling it something that was a, basically going to be the gayest film that had ever existed and he perhaps oversold it in terms of of how the finished product came out. But I do think that it challenges norms in multiple ways. But one of them is about having male lovers and about having erotic scenes. And so he was, it was pointed to the fact that there was no actual penetration. But of course, you know, we have uh, men who are kissing and we have men holding each other and we have fights over envy, right, and jealousy between lovers that are two men. And so I I do think it did challenge a a lot of the cultural norms at the time that that certainly people are exploring and and that are pretty provocative. I, I certainly was not alive when this movie was made, but I do think that he wanted to shake people up. And that was the intent of the movie. And and that has to be part of how we receive it. We had a gay wedding on top of it. And I'm like, yeah. is that the first time there's a gay wedding in the movie? Quite possibly. Quite possibly. But it's, it's kind of one facet of the way that everything in the movie is fluid and malleable and polymorphous and sexuality is too. Yeah, I, I sort of see that alongside even like the architecture is like it's both deeply familiar, but also maybe just sort of told in a different way like the insula the the interior of the ziggurat the the very very claustrophobic tenement building it has that very like crowded uh lived in sort of feeling that i feel like as human beings like we've all been in a space where we feel that that claustrophobia and we've all you know had relationships with other people and so all of these things feel so familiar I, yeah, I like this movie more talking about it. <laughs> or is it just the, Eli, the boats behind you? Um, I love the boats. Like I love the boats. <laughs> no, I, don't, I don't know if you have seen uh, Fellini's And the Ship Sails On. I have not. Which is more, more recent than, than Satyricon, but it is absolutely the movie for you. Okay. The whole movie takes place on a, an ocean liner, um, all of which is set, shot on a soundstage. There's no actual water there at all. 
Um, wow. But it's, it's exactly like the scene, the scene behind you, with uh, you know, with little little model boats floating around on a on a plastic ocean. Yeah. As we've been recording, we've been sort of creating a checklist of like things in movies that immediately get Eli invested in the movie. And we, so we've got boats. We've also got if there's any kind of heist involved, this is there's true. a heist scenario that's like that's like ten points for Eli. Embarrassing, but true. Any kind of like linguistic triangulation where something has to get translated through something else. Uh, there was more another. Oh, anytime anyone's gearing up for an expedition, that's also like that's the, that's an Eli Hallmark. That's so we're gonna, we're like creating. We're gonna come out of the end with our own movie where we we've like we've got all of our checklists, and then we just need to focus group it. And, uh, <laughs> Eli's perfect the movie. <laughs> <laughs> the boats just keep coming back to me. I they reminded me of like Mad Max and Waterworld. It was bizarre, and I think. The spaceship, the sort of like fantasy otherworld sci-fi part of this really got to me and I and I liked this. So I, I do you guys have favorite vignettes and do you like feel pulled artistically toward a certain character or a certain scene? I'm still figuring out my attachment to the boats, but where do you guys feel yourselves gravitating toward? I still gravitate towards the the Cana, uh, but I do think that it's interesting to think about how we focus so much on that portion, actually, and really what people don't realize, especially because we focus so much on the feast, is that what's going on in the in the rest of the book really is an odyssey, that this is about change of place, that this is movement, and that we're constantly going uh, to various areas, that we're going onto two different boats, right? That we're going to villas, that we're going to tenements, we're going to museums, we're going to baths, right? And we're going to, to various areas, we're constantly on the move. And so I think when people picture Petronius in their heads specifically, they often zero in on the Cana because it's the most famous portion of it. But then I think this movie does a good job of actually recapturing the movement and the odyssey that really is in the fragmented satiricon writ large. I spoke to one of my favorite scenes already, but another one that was very... So I was teaching a history of medicine and diseases this year. And so we, we ended up talking about like killing cults and kind of this balance between what people of Hippocratic Corpus were saying about health and medicine and how people lived in a world of medical pluralism. So it was just as important to consult the gods. And so seeing a group of individuals going to this cult site and like that was also one of those moments where you saw all these different types of bodies, including a uh, someone who had lost both arms and legs, but was being honored for their um, service in military. And to me, that was just such a cool moment of like, this is what the real ancient world would have looked like for being help for all of these different things. So to me, that moment was really cool to see, possibly in reflection to like what I've been teaching this semester. But like, that was a, a pleasant surprise. And I don't think that was included in the Satyricon. That was something that Fellini introduced. Mm -hmm. Um, which yeah. was really interesting to see. For me, I'd say the 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 two episodes that I that I probably enjoy most are the the art gallery scene and the scene at the suicide villa where they're sending the kids off, and then uh, and Colpius and and Ashultas come along and and find the the enslaved girl, and they all have sexy times, and and then the troops come to set the the pyre on fire, and and we don't know quite how, quite what happens after that. But I would I would say another thing that I love about this movie is the the animals who just sort of crop up in scenes for no particular reason. The horse in the uh, the initial insula scene, the elephant, um, mm. the Garden of Delights, the peacocks in the suicide villa. It's just sort of, I mean, it's perhaps a, uh, an extension of the Fellini's interest in the breadth of humanity is that he's also interested in the animal world and they're just out there kind of living their lives alongside all of this. Yeah. And, and that actually is a natural segue because the, the scene that I kind of was thinking about and then we, we haven't mentioned yet, just on the side, I think I liked this movie more as we went through it or as, as the movie progresses, partially, I think, because it becomes, to me, it seemed to become a little bit more grounded, where, like, the most grounded scene is the the Villa of the Suicides. That's a very, that was a very down-to-earth scene in the way, like, the first couple scenes of the of the movie are incredibly sort of almost, like, extraterrestrial. And it seemed to get a little bit more, and I think also partially that's because a lot of the set pieces were occurring 
outside or in more sort of, you know, where the, the insula is such an almost alien place. But we're, when we get to like the shores or the beach or, you know, places that are actual places that we're used to. But the long walk that I'm taking is is the speaking of the sort of fluidity and, and human and animal, but also the scene where, where they make uh, Inculpius reenact the Theseus myth and he has to go fight the Minotaur. And then it's all just a bar. It's a huge uh, practical joke, we, we might say. Because that's another, you know, there's a lot of, we've mentioned uh, that the Satyricon by Petronius is, is a sort of episodic travelogue-esque, you know, it's just a bunch of guys getting into misadventures all throughout Southern Italy, the most famous of which being the dinner. But, but, but Fellini, this is another part where Fellini is just whole cloth creating, you know, and it, t- it ties back into that hero narrative, kind of like Odysseus, but here it's Theseus, where, you know, traveling, of, of working his characters into a sort of archetype, but then at the same time, completely upending it where he doesn't, he obviously doesn't kill the Minotaur. He begs for mercy at the Minotaur's feet. And then the plot, such as it is, proceeds from there. I would be remiss if I didn't bring up the fact that actually in the 1960s, early 1960s, Fellini got into Carl Jung, that Mm -hmm. he, like many people, like like those who made 2001 A Space Odyssey uh, and and many others, people uh, that made Star Wars, uh, mm-hmm. many of them were very into Carl Jung and thinking about archetypes, thinking about heroes, reading Joseph Campbell's work, interacting with psychoanalysis in a, in a way that really is threaded through. So I do think that picking up on Theseus and bringing in the labyrinth and subverting heroes, et cetera, that all of that uh, is is probably very much in Fellini's mind, but also something that is being born out of the zeitgeist as well, because people are very into understanding heroic journeys, Carl Jung, archetypes, et cetera, uh, many of the things that Joseph Campbell was also picking up on. And Sarah, your your column in the LA uh, Review of Books is is oh, with Joel. With Joel. I give all deference also to Joel Christians and my my co-author for that, from whom I learned a lot. <laughs> well, I was I was reading it just the other day because I'm prepping. I'm, I'm giving a talk on the heroic figure in movies for for uh, UA Classics in like a, a week now, I think. But yeah, thinking about these kinds of deconstructions, and I was very much looking to that article for inspiration, but. We're obsessed with many of the same sources. And so you can see some of that coming through in 2001 in Space Odyssey, as I think 1969 as well. If I'm wrong, then then I'm happy to be called out. But they're roughly contemporaneous, right? And I, I do see some inspiration that is being shared. The Minotaur sequence is also another one of these recurrent elements in the movie. This is a movie that is full of labyrinths and mazes being being trapped in an area that you don't know and trying to get out of it and in a sense the whole movie is that um, and we are the ones trapped in it trying to find our way around and not really succeeding until the very end if then we all need an ariadne but we may not be able to trust her as we thought mm-hmm. I, that was kind of my thought i liked that she kind of gets revenge in this case where she's kicking him off the island for not performing his heroic duties um and it's like okay i like that moment for sure it was a poetic justice because theseus mythologically is a kind of a bad dude who who is very uh willing to throw people under the bus at the first chance he, he can ariadne included weirdly this the, the as we talk about the minotaur and the architecture i was also reminded of uh, a movie that Eli and I reviewed many about a year ago now called Immortals by uh, directed by Tarsem Singh, which takes a, I think, a very similar approach, at least in the aesthetic design. And now I wonder how much of, of Immortals was influenced by by this film because the, the settings and the set and the way it portrays Greece as this like alien landscape. Yeah, almost. like walls, sheer, mm-hmm. just like, yeah, desolate. Like- yeah, a, a building. Yeah, you'll have a shot of, of a, a completely flat sort of salt flats landscape with a building that rises up 20,000 stories sort of at a 90 degree angle. Uh, and the boats in that film are kind of reminiscent of the boats in this film. So I need maybe I need to go back and take a second review at a second look at Immortals written by our friends, uh, <laughs> yeah. Charlie and Vlas Parlaplanides. Yeah, yeah. But I digress. Well, I, I have sort of a maybe a, a toward wrapping things up thought or question. We've sort of talked about this movie being important to have maybe some Fellini context going into it, or at least maybe helpful. Do we need to have ancient world 
context to go into this? Do like do we need to have read Petronius to enjoy this movie? This is a question I struggle with constantly because I can't extract myself from myself. So, and I, but I I wrote this question down also. Like, is me having read Petronius a service or a disservice to me watching my my ability to watch this film? And I I genuinely don't. Although I did, I, I was sorry. He wanted people to read it along with the film because didn't they re-release the new translation of Petronius to coincide with the movie? I I want to mm-hmm. say that that is. Uh, something that happened that they that publishers rushed to kind of re-release Petronius along with mm-hmm. it but that doesn't mean that I think you have to in any in any way I, I think that classicists oftentimes would love to think that you have to read the book before you see the movie because it makes us feel centered and it makes us feel important and because we have invested so much time in believing that literature should be investigated. But I think that they can be read mutually exclusive of each other. I don't think that you have to read the Petronius before you go see the movie or vice versa. I would would say that having read Petronius enriches your experience of the movie um, and having watched other Fellini movies also also enriches your experience of it. But neither is necessary. And neither neither will leave you feeling that you now understand the movie or that you're now um, in control of it in any way. <laughs> it's not going to solve my problems. <laughs> the, the, there's a, a great quote. I forget who I heard this from, but but I feel like it's something like David Lynch said. But it's it's good movies are either a dream or a puzzle. And this movie falls very much into I'm a person that gen- tends to like puzzle kinds of films. But this is very much in the dream side of things. But if you try to go at this film like a puzzle that has a solution, then you're going to come out, I think woefully uh, unsatisfied. I think David Lynch probably likes this movie because 85% of the sets are red. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting you mentioned the, the colors because the one of the things that people have noted about it is the way that the, the color scheme of the movie kind of shifts and mutates as you go through the, the film. We start out in this kind of dark blue-green kind of underwater area. We move into kind of red with Trimalchio. In the suicide villa scene, we're in white, and then towards the end of the movie, we get kind of more more earth tones, um, mm-hmm. greens and browns. Somebody was saying that the the movie feels more grounded to them as they as we move through it, and I think part of that is the this kind of very conscious shift of colors and elements and perhaps seasons uh, as you make your way through it. Ooh, I like the idea of seasons, yeah. the seasonality yeah. of it, because it it always seems very much more like. Ulysses than the Odyssey, and that is such a contracted period of time, which is only a few days. But we have just, you know, this contracted period of time, whereas the Odyssey is is much longer. Um, but yeah, oh, I like thinking about this as as shifts and seasons over the course of this journey. I was going to give a shout out. So I have Sarah Rudin's translation of Satyricon. And instead of reading Satyricon, I actually read commentaries at the end. And that was actually really helpful in going over some of the philosophies that were present at the time, like Stoicism and Epicureanism. And um, Sarah's holding it up right here. Yeah. It, um, (laughs) so like going back to the suicide villa, like having that kind of reminder of what were some of the philosophies that Petronius was commenting on. And Fellini kind of actually kept that element in. So like that was really helpful. So not necessarily reading the the actual satiricon, but getting some of those commentaries or just kind of understanding what was the significance of the dinner party? What was Roman se- sexuality? Because the other thing she highlighted is that in, in ancient Greece and Rome, it's women who the, are the hypersexualized beings and that you have to like control them in order to protect them versus Victorian times kind of flips that where you have to protect women from predatory men instead. But either way, her, her final line on it's like, I shall end this on a huff or something like that. Cause she's like, either way, women got kind of screwed, um, depending on like who was the hypersexualized being in that case. So um, I do recommend that if you want to go into this with a little bit more general understanding of the ancient Roman world. Yeah, I just held up the lobe here because it is paired with Seneca. And so it is important to think about the stoicism that's floating around, the the fact that 
only about five years after this is written that Petronius is going to be forced into killing himself. And when he opens his veins, I think allegedly he goes and still has dinner. Yep. And he he wants it to be a normal day that he dies at the end of. And I think that that's why when Tacitus talks about him later on in the annals um, in book 16, he's reflecting on this arbiter of excellence and somebody who indulged, but also somebody who just lived day to day. Also, like sort of contextually, audiences might have been even been primed for that because I guess maybe a decade prior, more than that, almost two decades prior, we had Quo Vadis, where there's a great, well, the, my favorite scene in that movie, probably my only scene that I really like in that movie is where Petronius invites everyone to dinner, reveals his plan, and then reads out his letter to Nero, where he's like, you're a hack and your art is bad. <laughs> Petronius out. And so people probably might have been going in thinking of, you know, thinking of that scene and they watch this movie and they're like, that's what this guy was writing? I love it. <laughs> I think we're probably at about time. If anyone had any final thoughts. Watch more movies. Care less about its accuracy and historical (laughs) record. Digest and take movies for what they are. I think I was insufferable watching HBO Rome the first time around. And certainly when I gave my advisor the DVD set, which I am looking at right now in my office of HBO Rome, he was not happy with it. But the older I get, the more... I want to go back to Colin's comment earlier that we need to get away from the metric of historicity, that certainly there are certain movies like 300 that the xenophobia and the stereotyping are extremely damaging and something that I would like to abandon. But that's very much a part of Herodotus's depictions of Persians as well. And so I think that Thinking about the choices that people make are very important, but holding up the metric of historicity to to every single movie is not always the way to enjoy it. It's something that I, I think that classicists need to really internalize probably in life as well, that maybe we should try and be less critical of many things. I love that. Yeah, we, we here at Dig Movies want to dig more movies for sure. <laughs> I think that 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 brings us to the end of our conversation. So our, our final verdict is is go watch this movie. It's it's at the very least a interesting film and a sort of film worth thinking about. We want to uh, thank Sarah and Greg uh, so much for coming on to talk with us. We love having our guests because they elevate our conversation in, in in ways that we can't even predict sometimes. If listeners want to uh, read or hear more from you, uh, where where can they do that? Uh, you can follow me at Sarah E Bond on Twitter. And uh, I write for an arts journal called Hyperallergic. And also, because I know that he's not going to tell you to, I think you should buy Greg's translation of Marcus Aurelius's meditations, because I teach with it and greatly enjoy it. Um, I also am on Twitter uh, at Aristofontes, A-R-I-S-T-O-F-O-N-T-S. And I write from time to time for the New York Review of Books. So you can you can find me there. Excellent. Well, thank you all so much for joining us. And um, as with always with all of our guests, uh, it's an open invitation. If there's a movie or a show or a game you really want to talk about, just drop us a line and we'll, we'll have you back in a heartbeat. Thank you again. And, and uh, we'll be seeing you around. Bye. 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 Bye.